0: Been this question I've been that I've been slowly introducing over several episodes. Um, and the question is whether utopias are parasitic projects and if they're parasitic projects, what are the implications of that? So I want to talk a bit about some examples of things that are like utopias, but we're sure are not and uh and sort of begin working outwards from there uh gonna throw in some mormon concepts gonna throw in some non-mormon concepts because there are a few quite useful concepts that mormonism introduces in order to talk about some of these things but you'll notice right that as we were going through the various um utopias in british columbia there are clear economic, cultural, and uh, political links to the dominant culture. So you can take the example of a place like Santula. Here you have a utopian, communitarian, democratic enterprise that's collectivist, um, but one that is highly dependent on external manufacturing for the goods it transacts through its co-op and highly dependent on centralized and often transnational logging Mm -hmm. and um, uh, cannery companies um, in uh, in British Columbia uh, that um, uh, these companies, essentially are paying the wages that are then being used in the co-op to buy the goods that someone else is making. Um, we can take the example of the, um, uh, we can take the example of the various bioregionalist uh, groups, uh, foot, for instance. foot starts out more self-sufficient, but it is dependent on uh things for in their setup battery inverter systems and uh, various electric devices that are necessary um and uh very much liking the backdrop there michael excellent tardis backdrop um there uh, so there's a certain amount of external tech um but also a lot of what goes on is yes they do have draft animals they have cows they have horses um those animals do real work But um, ultimately, a lot of what's going on is uh, people are growing dope, that dope is being um, shipped out by the Hells Angels, and uh, money is coming in, and that money is paying for books, it's paying for gas, and... yeah, I, I would agree. I think Santula is probably, Archie, yeah, I would agree. I think, it's, I think it's our probably, in a way, most pristine utopia, even though it has the highest rates of external exchange. And that's one of the things that we might want to really think about. Like, What are the relationships when it comes to external exchange? Now Seeds is hugely successful. And here Seeds is a, is a more complicated story because many of the things that other people are buying, seeds is stealing for its first years. Um, So there's less of a dependence on mainstream society. They're not stealing gas, but they're stealing cars and uh, houses and fields. Um, And when seeds does get into higher levels of exchange, their exchange is often with um, things that are not mainstream. Right, they're exchanging their services with the animals and animals themselves uh, with other co ops that um, are also living off the land and are also doing a lot of stuff outside the money economy. And the troopers, similarly, this isn't the Ministry of Social Services who's sending the troopers their way. These are um, grassroots, hard scrabble, anti poverty activists who are walking a beat in very marginalized neighborhoods. And they're just choosing to send the troopers that way. Um, Branch Flower Co-op, even though it nearly produced nothing, um, ends up as part of some bizarre international exchange of um, moving shitty uh, broken bicycles to Guatemala, which are then repaired and repurposed to um, run other bicycles. Um, And so when we start thinking about places like this, Even with a place like Metlakatla, where people are largely still eating a, and I think I might've accidentally said Tlingit last time, I meant Simpson diet. um, There's still, you know, the rifles, the fishing boats, the flour, the kettles, the butter. um, That stuff is all still coming in. And when we start looking at places like Metlakatla, when we look back at the praying towns of Martha's Vineyard in the 17th century, a question we might ask is, is this really that different from a convent or a monastery? Now, nobody thinks of a monastery as a utopian experiment. Maybe in the early days before uh, The Benedictine rule was canonized by the church in, uh, I guess that would be the uh, fifth century. Um, But since then, certainly, it's understood that monasteries are places where men go to embody the ideals of Christian life and places where in fact, they're far more rigorous in maintaining such things as self-government and material uh, independence Uh, monasteries uh, today often produce a far wider variety of raw materials and simple manufactured goods than the best utopian uh, community of the 20th century uh, might uh, pull off. There's a reservoir of skill and there's a set of rules, It and so these places are clearly as or more independent. They are as or more idealistic. They are as or more disruptive to normal material relations. You're far more likely to use a $20 bill in Argenta uh, in a week than you are to use one at a monastery. And yet, It's very clear in people's minds that monasteries are not utopian projects. They're an attempt to show an idealized community. But one of the things I would argue makes them not a utopian project is their project is not universal. It is not the belief of the Roman Catholic Church that we would achieve an ideal Christian civilization if everyone lived as a monk or a nun. Uh, In fact, it's assumed that they are a minority. They are an exemplary minority, but their minority status is inherent in their very definition. And I think, so right away, I think we see this problem of how do we place these utopian experiments? Uh, Now, When we start thinking about efforts like this, um, monasticism is a pretty special social movement that arises out of a confluence of very specific circumstances in the fourth century. There had certainly always been ascetics, people who eschewed property, lived in poverty, and were viewed as exemplary wisdom teachers in Europe and Asia north africa but those people didn't were often itinerant and they were often public facing um non-public facing experiments are a little more different and one of the things that um i think for many uh, so there was a very important mormon intellectual in the 20th century named hugh nibley who i spent a lot of time studying and writing about and He's the one person where my publisher is still nagging me to publish my analysis of Nibley because it's no one else's and it does seem to fit. Um, Nibley uh, believed that, Nibley was an extraordinary linguist. He uh, could read uh, pretty much any uh, Near Eastern language, uh, various points in history. And he came to believe that new discoveries in um Near Eastern archaeology were going to, um, uh, that these new discoveries in, um, in, uh, in archaeology that were going to prove the Mor- Mormonism correct, that the Nag Hammadi scrolls, the Dead Sea scrolls, all these things, it was all going to get sorted out. Now, largely, Nibley was wrong. Um, he did a bunch of translating. He had a very particular translating methodology that was, that he's absolutely explicit about what his methodology is. And it's not the normal methodology of a translator. People say, well, Nibley was a fraud. No, Nibley was not a fraud. Nibley told you exactly what he was doing, and then he did it. You may object to the project he was engaged in, but he didn't lie about the project. Um, so for instance, one of the more egregious examples of Nibley's translation strategy was he stated, um, it was a well-established fact that in early temple rites across um, all near Eastern religions it was understood there was a temple above the earth, a temple upon the earth and a temple below the earth and they connected in the temple upon the earth. And he gives a little citation of a text by Varro and I go to the citation, I find it in the original Latin, I translate the original Latin, and it says, temples are good places for performing auguries. So, um, uh, that's the sort of liberality with which Nibley translated. Um, So, This, um, But one of the things that Nibley does come up with through his extensive study of the Dead Sea Scrolls was he sees that there is an impulse inside Mormonism that has a greater universality than he had considered. So often when people look at the Dead Sea Scrolls, they see this community called the Essenes who go into the hills, they believe the world is going to end, they go into the hills, and they create this text-focused or not democratic, but self-governing community of holy men who try to be as materially self-sufficient as possible so they can cut themselves off from the corruption of the Herodian state. And many people see the seeds of monasticism in this, that here you have similar ranks there's this guy at the top called the teacher of wisdom and it's organized it seems like a proto-monastic community. Um, Nibley puts I think a more correct a more Mormon take on um, the Essenes and the Dead Sea Scrolls because what he suggests is that they understand that they are the remnant that civilization they that every that civilization ends all the time and whenever a dispensation ends or an eon as nibley was more fond of saying ends um an elect remnant separates themselves materially and avoids the cataclysm and they constitute the seed for another attempt at building the kingdom of god on earth and so there's this idea that joseph smith comes along um and by restoring the gospel what he's doing is he's relinking that chain that there should have been a remnant of people who still remembered who could have taught that stuff in person and all these prophets wouldn't have had to come back from uh the afterlife to do this um and so there's this sense that um the that there that it's actually normal for there to be these groups that split off and of course Noah and his story um is the example in scripture that um people of Nibley's uh, persuasion point to here we are the God God presses the reset button but he separates this group and they go on and they try to found the kingdom of God on earth and they fail too and the cycle repeats but This is very different than a monastic idea because these remnants are are understood to be, not to be parasitic on this thing, not to be part of a larger system, but to be the seed of something new. And I think this is helpful, that difference between the Mormon interpretation of the Essenes and a Catholic interpretation of the Essenes is some of the problem we're wrestling with about what is a utopia? To what degree can something still be a utopia if it's what, if what it's actually doing is fulfilling a function for mainstream society that mainstream society needs to get done in order to keep being mainstream society? Uh, this is uh, this is an important question. Are these so? what are the criteria for being a utopian community? And now let me throw out another class of thing. Again, looking a bit towards Utah, but also towards Nevada. Um, There's another class of community, like a monastery, that meets many of the criteria of a utopia that we never think of as a utopia. And this is um, the tradition of the idealized capital or the replica capital. Annabelle Wharton talks about this very interesting phenomenon that uh, existed um, after the uh, fourth crusade in uh, medieval Europe, which was uh, after the, the crusaders had screwed up all the pilgrimage uh, rights Gone over there, won the Crusader states, got thrown out, and then the pilgrimage rights weren't restored because fuck you. Um, All these Europeans were very, very interested in going to Jerusalem all of a sudden. European culture had become more like Muslim culture. There was this sense of obligation to do a pilgrimage. People started thinking about pilgrimage just like Muslims thought about the Hajj. And so there was this huge demand for that but suddenly people couldn't go to Jerusalem they couldn't go to Bethlehem they couldn't go to the Holy Land and so Europeans and Africans and Asians began constructing Jerusalem replica cities uh almost all have been demolished uh some sadly very recently this this kind of replica Jerusalem thing doesn't fit into anybody's favorite archeological story. Uh, So the replica Jerusalem that has survived is not an archeological dig. It's the replica Jerusalem that never stopped running in Lalibela, Ethiopia, where the geography of Jerusalem is inscribed on a piece of uh, Ethiopian geography. And some of it is done metaphorically Some parts of Jerusalem are more embellished, but for instance, to have a proper Jerusalem replica, you need the river Jordan. So uh, in this very arid area of Ethiopia, yes, it's not even really, that tells you something, but there's compression, right? People wanna be able to bathe in the Jordan. They wanna be able to visit Bethlehem. They wanna go to Jerusalem. So when you build a replica city and you'll see where this is going pretty clearly, you're amplifying and condensing um, the environment. And uh, yes, the, um, now uh, and that, that, that's an idea that only recently really died out. Um, one of my early political campaigns was against the Vancouver Park Board um, that had decided to redesign Stanley Park, the iconic downtown Vancouver Park, Um, And the mandate was to and I quote, condense and improve nature. Um, They were going to dig a shoreline 400 meters from the real shoreline, but they were going to put in a wave machine that made bigger waves because the waves in English Bay are not big. That's why it's a successful port. So um, anyway, and they were going to put in big steel mesh enclosures full of seabirds that no longer existed in Vancouver, et cetera, et cetera. So this replica city tradition becomes a major tourist tradition and a pilgrimage tradition. And Annabelle Wharton suggests that there is actually a direct historical line that you can trace from a 13th century replica city to Disneyland. That what the replica cities do is they they create a new idea of an ideal place the place is an ideal because it's an amplification of the qualities of a real place that you admire and those qualities are thrown into very sharp relief and in many ways i would argue that that is really modern salt lake city One of the features of Salt Lake is that um, the uh, Mormon church owns a shitload of downtown and routinely demolishes thriving, successful parts of downtown because they're looking too much like a normal city. And the point of downtown Salt Lake, even though it doesn't have a Mormon majority living in it, is still to be this public-facing, idealized space. And i don't think that, that that shift from seeing utopia as provo the place with a 97% mormon population and very high levels of direct church government that's not the ideal it's this monolithic public facing place that symbolically and physically embodies these ideals And I don't, I think that there was a certain amount of replicating Washington DC and the Imperial grandiosity that helped set Salt Lake up for that under Brigham Young's rule. But after Young, I don't think we really see this, um, there's all this building initially. And then we see a bit of a hiatus after Salt Lake has its temple and all this other stuff. Um, The really impressive building boom in downtown Salt Lake by the Mormon church, where they rehabilitate historical sites like Young's House, and they build these big skyscrapers and monuments. Um, I think it's engendered by competition with the other replica city in the desert, the other theme park, that being Las Vegas. Um, Las Vegas Is it a capitalist utopia? It's an interesting possible way to look at it. I mean, in many ways, all kinds of things are shorn away from capitalism. The idea that the house doesn't always win, right? That um, you know you're in Vegas and you know that you're in someone else's game. I think that in this way, Vegas better embodies capitalism's self-consciousness but also you use money to make money in Vegas. It's the intermediation of things like work or time or things like that all disappear, right? That intensification, that sense of compression and intensification you associate with the replica cities is absolutely uh, on display in uh, Las Vegas. Um, and you get monolithic architecture, highly showy monolithic architecture on the strip. Um, and, and then we think about, well, who's, who's producing those monoliths, those enormously lavish presentations at its height? Well, of course it's the mob, um, right. That in this way, Vegas is not running like normal capitalism. Vegas is not just parasitic on all the tourists it brings in, it's parasitic on all the crime that produces the money. You have to bring the tourists in to launder. Uh, And so there's, a so Vegas is deeply enmeshed in propounding the symbolic language of the greatness of capitalism and in many ways, it um, going to Vegas is, um, it's a capitalist hodge, much more than any cr- Christian pilgrimage, um, right? Christian pilgrimage, you often shop in places that aren't very welcoming, uh, unless they're doing very well out of the pilgrimage trail and very badly out of everything else. You never know what you're gonna get on a pilgr- Christian pilgrimage trail. But on the other hand, everybody's job in Mecca and Medina is to welcome you and make sure that you have a transcendent experience. Um, In this way, the Salt Lake and Vegas both do this in spades, right? The, um, all of this, it's not just public facing symbols and monoliths, it's a very external facing public facing friendliness. Uh, And this air of welcome into which everybody has been uh, conscripted. Um, So there's, so I wanna suggest there are these, what we might call utopia adjacent categories. Um, These replica city theme park things, which are real urban communities that millions of people live in, Um, be they, you know, Vegas, Salt Lake, or Rome itself. Um, Where, but what we see there is that the locals don't experience the utopia materially. They run the utopia, but they don't live in it. The people who experience all the generosity, all the windfalls, all the life-changing experiences are people who can only be visiting. Those experiences become walled off to you as a resident. And we can see that that's a sharp difference, right? A utopian community is resident-facing, not public-facing, if we can make some generalizations. Um, Then we look at the other side of the coin. And I think in this way, uh, Vegas also fits. Vegas isn't exactly a monastery, but it has a similar function in that It is part of a capitalist whole that actually doesn't function properly without it. And so you've got to say, well, if a utopia makes the mainstream society, yes, sacred prostitution, indeed. If the utopia is actually a piece a mechanism that makes the overall machine of the mainstream society run better, is this a utopia? Or is it just a piece? Uh, Is it just a nice piece of real estate inside another thing? And I think that that evolution with camel's foot, with its increasing entanglement and its increasing level of acceptance, helps deal with that. Michael, you uh, turned your mic on for a moment.
1: Yeah, can you hear me okay? Yeah. So I I got a little lost there when you're talking about a utopia that helps the mainstream fulfill its mainstream job? What What are you talking about there?
0: Well, I was using the example of monasteries, right? Monasteries made Roman Catholicism run better. They make Roman Catholicism run better. And certainly in medieval society, monasteries were an important engine in the economy. They're also where you put gay people so that they weren't trouble, so that they were productive. Um, they greased the wheels of society as a whole. The fact that a monastery was down the road from some baron's fief only redounded to the success of the baron's fief. It wasn't acting as an attack or a criticism. I would argue that um, when you look at Camel's Foot or Branch Flower or a number of the um, the uh, baby boomer uh, mini utopias. What they're doing is, um, they are a cog in, um, the, uh, in, uh, drug distribution to white people. Like that's, that's what's going on. Dope needs to be grown. Dope needs to be, uh, and it, um, and it's greasing the wheels. It may be illegal, but it's greasing the wheels for society. Society's running better because you got a bunch of, uh, people in, uh, Northwest of Lillooet, who are um, you know loading big bales of uh, marijuana onto uh, pickup trucks once a year, uh, and uh, you can take seeds, for instance, um, pulling these uh, homeless indigenous people off Hastings Street and off um, uh, and off. Um, oh, I've forgotten the name of the fucking street in Williams Lake. Doesn't matter. Um, and putting them to work um, is this, is this making it easier or harder for mainstream society to run? And I would argue that um, in a lot of cases, these utopian projects, they start out with an adversarial relationship. Initially seeds people are stealing land and stealing houses and stealing cars. But over time, they're, um, you know, they're the upstanding, uh, long, the upstanding, long-standing members of the board of the Cattlemen's Association.
1: I think maybe the where I got tripped up there was in the monastery example. You've got this gigantic network of hundreds and thousands of these organized monasteries running on a system that is filtering up to a larger umbrella system and I, I get that relationship and I get what you're saying but when you talk about some of these other examples um, it seems like a, I'm not saying it's a total stretch, I get what you're trying to say but the the impact on the larger society is to me less than a drop in the bucket compared to the impact of the monasteries.
0: Like it, um, I, I get it's what you're trying to say but they, 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 that's, seem, that's... they seem really, really Tiny. In terms of scale, economic scale, absolutely right, because uh, monasteries are, are supplying staple food um, and the back to the lander utopias are largely, they're producing the most popular illicit drug in society and they're producing 75% of it at the height of their, uh, their economic relevance. But yeah, the scale is far, far, far smaller. I think the other question, though, that you bring up is equally, right, these, these monasteries fitted into a formal system. Um, and what we see with these back-to-the-landers in uh, Quebec and BC and to an extent in Ontario, yes, the Hell's Angels are there as distributors every time, but the real organizing principle is simply capitalism. The point is, the point of capitalism is that you don't have to codify and formalize and make permanent economic migration or trade arrangements. Capitalism just is the pattern of those things. So a bunch of young people move, um, you know, leave their society, become economically unproductive. They're resettled in this other location and they start, then they turn they begin producing something else the society wants. And although their relationship may be adversarial, they're feeding a desired commodity into a capitalist system and making it run better. And I would agree, they're not the same thing. And what um, I'm trying to do on both sides, whether it's the how are utopias not replica cities. And on the other side, it's how are utopias not monasteries because there's bleed at the edges of those categories
1: in, in that same example maybe all the uh cryptocurrency uh digging that goes on in these remote areas where they're sucking up all the hydroelectric power and a bunch of young people set up these massive server farms to mine bitcoin is you know they're fulfilling a need and they're doing their weird little capitalist thing in the middle of nowhere and you know, trying to make a buck, it, it sounds kind of the same. But one other thing I wanted to mention about the, the Las Vegas and the, the outward versus inward facing, I, I totally agree that if the only people that are participating in the utopia are the tourists, that's not a utopia. The, it's a utopia because you get to live in the utopia. If, if you can only participate in the utopia for two weeks, that's a cruise. That's not
0: a utility. Yeah. Yeah, I think, yeah. So clearly, I think as a group, we're prioritizing inward facing as a major criterion. But I'm interested in hearing from uh, the rest of you about what you think about how a utopia's involvement in exchange, how that affects its status as a utopia, whether that's a strong force, a negative force, or orthogonal, RT?
2: Well, as far as exchange goes, I'm not settled, but I'm leaning towards orthogonal. Um, I wanted to say that I think it is useful to examine these features in terms of like their scale as part of it, like a fractal kind of system. Like you don't know if you're looking at a wart or an ass or a wart on an ass or a wart on a toad's ass. Um, Cause I was thinking about like, I am a member of a utopian community of the Mormons. Um, we don't really function as uh, an insular sort of community anymore. I don't live in Salt Lake or Utah even. But I think about when I was a missionary and the life I was supposed to lead and the kind of work I was supposed to do and how in a way that was not a localized, but a sort of temporal utopia that I had to participate in. It was the same sort of project and that it was universal. All young men are called to serve. And um, I was exchanging ideas with people, maybe not money or anything like that. And I was doing a corvée labor, like Santula sent their people to do, to to benefit them personally and make money for the co-op. Um, and I, I think that's kind of a similar difference in scale from the utopia to the smaller utopian experience inside the utopian community. Between um, a few weeks ago when we were talking about the the, the Republic, the Los Altos Republic in Paraguay, it was it a kind of capitalism or was it just a weird shrunken feature that looked like a different kind of thing when we looked at it at scale. Was it para-capitalist? Was it just something that has to exist alongside to make ca- different implementations of capitalism able to coexist at the same time within the wider capitalism? Um, so yeah, those are all great thoughts to hear.
0: Yeah, and I, I'm really glad you brought up Paraguay because I, I was very much hoping someone would take us back there because yeah, on the one hand, right, it's this story of incredible self sufficiency and incredibly high levels of self government. Um, you know, the self government being in some ways the most striking, and yet the self, and yet material surplus and exchange with the capitalists obviously drove um, a huge amount. It meant that Paraguay did not have to industrialize in any significant way, that um, because Argentina and Uruguay were so fucked uh, and Brazil was so fucked there, it was as though things that Europe made just got into Paraguay precisely because of how screwed up the indebted free market economies around it were, that it, it could effectively suck a rifle into uh, up the Piranha River uh, in that way. So, yeah, I think, yeah, the exchange question is, yeah, there's, and then delimitation, can you, um, yeah, the the time thing is, uh, yeah, it's like, well, we could spatially bound the community, but what if we temporarily bound the community? Uh, If only so many people can be in it, um and of course we see that in uh yeah in all kinds of uh missionary traditions uh you know even the Amish reverse missionary traditions uh it's like there they're bounding their utopia the opposite way they're going i think people can handle living in this utopia for all but two years of their lives so now we just have to release them for two years and then they can be in the system the rest of the time. That's a it's a different bounding as well, Michael.
1: I think we we need to then seriously examine all inclusive resorts as a, a
0: form. Of- <laughs> yeah. yeah, they um, they certainly are. I mean, they are the replica city. They um, they uh, they pull that off, um, but. Uh, so if we can think about these criteria then as we're sort of moving towards um the uh, the end so a thing that can make something not a utopia is that it's too temporarily ephemeral another thing that can make something not a utopia is that it can it cannot be experienced in a permanent or ongoing way a lot of time stuff right you can't if you can't stay in vegas it can't be a utopia if you can't stay in mecca it can't be a utopia um the uh, or you just start having a very different life in mecca if you stay uh what are some other things that uh, you guys think would just are just immediate disqualifiers for a community being a utopia
1: The list is so incredibly long. I think the shorter list is what makes it a utopia. Because, I mean, if we're if, all right, go with that. If, I mean, then every you know what isn't a utopia? My living room's a utopia. The street I live on is a <laughs> utopia. I find a utopia every morning when I wake up in this fabulous world. Like, <laughs> what's the what is a utopia then if if
0: anything well, could be a utopia, right? Well, I, I mean, I, I'm not, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't propose that, but I actually think we could, I think we can, it doesn't matter whether it's an is or an isn't, I actually think we can shear off this category pretty fast. Jonathan?
3: Well, it seems to me that part of the issue, of course, is that we're looking at failed utopias. By definition, right. they're the most successful ones. Right, Unless we define the success of a utopia not as persisting as a utopia but producing a result. So this was the thing where you weren't here for it, but RT and I, I think, were agreeing at a profound level that the purpose of a utopic religious community is to embody the replica city, to survive the cataclysm, to create a nation down the road. The nation isn't a utopia, but you have to go through a utopia, a series of utopias, to get there because it is the survival form of humanity under pressure. And ah. the,
1: the utopia is the the utopia is the journey, not the destination.
3: Yeah, like for in example, I'm thinking, scale, of, I'm thinking of my people's experience, right? Like you would think that the kibbutz is our utopian ideal, but actually, it's not. It's embedded in in state. Um, and, and, and the thing about kibbutzim is, in fact, they can't persist. Weirdly, they cannot persist in isolation. Kibbutzim are so utopic that they don't breed. They can only exchange with other kibbutzim or other places outside the society because people who blow up in a kibbutz simply don't marry each other. Because having eliminated the family, incest taboo covers everyone in your age category, pretty much. So... It's 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 actually impossible to maintain a stable in kibbutz in isolation. You would never attempt to do it. The utopic form of Jewish living is the ghetto. The ghetto is the is the new Jerusalem. the will replica of Jerusalem. You know, and the way we envision these things, like the way we envision Jerusalem, is is like this this sort of incredibly dense fortress town. Sfat is like that. Jerusalem is kind of not really like that anymore. And the ghettos are, are attempts to create those inside other cities where we live our lives, very inward looking. And, and idealize it. We idealized it for thousands of years, uh, because it was all we could do. And eventually it, you know, we stopped believing in that. And the ceasing to believe in it is the thing that recreated the nation.
1: That's a, that's a really interesting idea there about the... If you look at the root of an idealized situation, call it call it utopian, and I think the ghetto example is fantastic. So the, the root of it, though, where does it all come from? Why are a bunch of people living in the ghetto in the first place? They didn't wake up one morning and say, you know what we need to do to produce a utopian society? We need to get ourselves crammed into a ghetto.
3: No, there were refugees from the idealized former society which ceased to but that's, exist.
1: But that, that's that transformation from, um, yes, we're here, yes, we're dealing with this thing, We the survival mechanism kicks in, but that, that transformation from trying to stay alive, trying to keep a culture functioning inside These false parameters that have been placed upon them by uh, downward power pressure. But as generation after generation after generation, when when you said that becomes idealized because that's all you know, and you know you have to make the best of it, even though if given a choice, no one would ever want to live there. But after numerous generations, suddenly it's like, well, this is our thing. This this is how our culture except bubbles that, up, and except you
3: know. that it's not actually just saying we like to live in the ghetto and that's it, because the ghetto is a miniature Jerusalem, and what we always want is to escape the ghetto and live in Jerusalem. At yeah, what
1: point? Of, at what point does the ghetto become mini Jerusalem?
0: Always. Ah. Uh, <laughs> So, I'm just RT. Uh, did you want to go right now because I was gonna intervene a little bit on two fronts here?
2: I was just my uh, maybe it's not even as pithy as I thought, but the way I conceptualize it is again, in terms of scale, the difference between a society that has achieved communism and a society that is run by communists,
0: right? So, um, so first thing, um, the um the, the refugee story is the, the pattern of the ghetto is bigger than the refugee story. And I don't want to overly quibble about which parts of the refugee story work, which way and which, you know, like I do with the Puritans, but right. There's an overall myth that like, just like the, the pilgrim fathers that then everything gets slotted into. And often the myth is based on recent history. I think, um, just as a provocation when we come back to this, right? You wanna think about Philo of Alexandria, right? And how Alexandria is pulling voluntary migrants out of Jerusalem. Um, And Alexandria does not appear to have been created by by the Jewish quarter of Alexandria, greatest Jewish city in human history, appears to have been created primarily not by refugees and not by the descendants of the slaves who stayed, but rather by um, mercenaries uh, used in the um, in the uh, the post Alexander wars between uh, Ptolemy and Seleucus. And so um, there's lots of stories for like these ghettos, like the one file in right it's magnetic it's like um, it's like chicago for black people escaping the south during jim crow right it's it's that kind yeah. of place Yeah, no no, no sure and, it is but, but so no, I,
3: there was yeah, something, let me, yeah go on there was something very something i've noticed and this is really something that only happened because cat dragged me there um, and, and it sort of fits with some places she's been. There are these newer, there are these Jewish suburbs in the Anglosphere, Hampstead Garden Suburb, um, Hampstead in Montreal. Uh, there's a place in, in Queens, I think, or Brooklyn, that's a bit like this. There are these very Jewish suburbs, which are patterned after Jerusalem in ways that are really obvious if you've lived there. There are cities on hills with circular roads, they're very inward looking, they're they're walled off by, by sort of little gardens with vadis in them. They created a little artificial vadis in London for this in order to make the landscape look like parks in Jerusalem. Um, there, there is, I mean, you know, yes, it's all William, very William Morris, but it's very much Jerusalem at the same time. And I think this is a form that, that even sort of rich middle-class Jews will, will adopt. And and cluster together, it's not a ghetto they've been forced into, it's a ghetto they've been drawn to, while being very materially successful in the outside community. So that the next
0: so the, the next place I want to go, uh, yeah, actually National Geographic. Uh, so RT in, in the 1950s, um one of the during the McKay presidency, right? The first clearly clean-shaven uh, prophet, um um, one of the things that McKay gets done early on to, to, uh, to like in his reimagining the image of the LDS and the ideal kingdom is he gets National Geographic to do a feature on all the geographic similarities between the um, the valleys in Utah and the Jordan Valley and uh, between uh, Greater Salt Lake and Greater Jerusalem <laughs> and uh, you can actually go to a library find the old um, National Geographic, it's a scream. Um, now, nice. yes, these are problems. So the other thing I wanted to go to is there are two things that were raised. Um, the remnant thing, I just wanna to put to bed a little bit to suggest, I think we're really onto something with the idea of the remnant that separates itself to be the seed of a thing. Because for those of you who did not take the green politics course, This is the obsession of these bioregionalists. They apply this thing they call the embryo theory, which is that um, their community or communities are the embryo of the society and uh, of the society they're trying to create. So they're using a developmental reproductive metaphor um, to suggest right, this future uh, development into a whole thing. And um, our, uh, our unofficial uh, you know, uh, ideological patron, David Lewis, got into a very interesting argument with the embryonists because they were a disaster in the Green Party, right? The, the, the ideal politics they wanted to create, there were no, it was a participatory democracy. So why are we running candidates? Um, it was decentralized, so why do we have an address? You know, that sort of thing. It was a nightmare dealing with these folks. And the way David Lewis rebutted them was not by saying we are not the embryo. He took a rhetorical shortcut, or maybe he really meant it. You never know with the guy. His argument was: I don't think you realize how physiologically different embryos are from children. And You shouldn't expect your embryo to resemble the thing it's going to become. That that indicates a misunderstanding of what an embryo is, which was a, it was a fascinating left turn in the debate that left everybody speechless. But I do think that embryo theory, that idea of the embryo and what's being created in that whole process, um, it wasn't that they really. It, that, that suffused their language to the point where it wasn't even an argument they were making. It was a premise on which other arguments were founded. And the other thing I wanted to mention, the thing that I thought we'd go to with, well, what do you definitely need or not need is um, what about intent and consciousness of intent? Um, today we've taken a turn that is very much away from that idea the idea is that um, intent and consciousness of intent are largely irrelevant. Um, that an embryo was a class of thing. And if we're thinking, and we we should develop criteria for describing it, that's based on, well, what it's for. And I think the fact that you are able to make the argument, well, we have a definition. It's a thing that turned, it's a thing designed to turn into this other thing. Um, that pushes intent and awareness to the side. Um, But I I think it's worth at least considering the possibility that places that turn out to be good places and societies that turn out to be good societies are just good places and good societies. And that that utopia in its normal usage in the English language, is, about, um, um, is intentional, is self-conscious, and it propounds um, its self-conscious understanding of itself as its official ideology. Maybe we can just huck that in the bin after today, but I thought it at least merited consideration. How do we feel about intent and consciousness? Are they as peripheral as we're starting to say exchanges. Jonathan, you're the one who's unmuted right now, so we'll start off with you.
3: Oh, I was just gonna look up the thing RT was asking. Um, No, I don't remember what the planet alien was called, actually, Um, it might've just had a number. I thought the important thing was that the ship was the Nostromo because that situates it as an abandoned exploited colony from the um but yeah okay.
1: talking about the planned utopias then of course you have to address intent because somebody said i'm going to go do this thing hey everyone come follow me oh why are we following you oh because of the grand plan there's uh, a stated utopian vision at the beginning of a lot of these failed projects some of them maybe you could call them accidental but in most of the cases we've looked at, I think it's pretty intentional. There's declarations, there's rallying, there's um, a desire to continue on in the face of adversity. Why? Because of Holy Scripture or inspiration or the outside world is so awful, we
3: need to continue there's all. There's lots of, de- of clear intent. Yeah, the question is, is the intent actually related to the outcome you mean did they did they get what they asked for and and do they do they and do they want what they get right um like like the people who are most attached to the ghetto lifestyle recreated the ghetto inside jerusalem and insist that israel is illegitimate because it's
0: I mean, also, I assumed, but I assumed utopias were self-declared and intentional when I designed the course. So I, I had my own definition of what a utopia was. And I had put that in there that so that I, I, think, I think that I agree with Jonathan in the sense that um, self-consciousness rarely helps a utopia be a good place but I'm not sure something can be a utopian project without the self-consciousness. I think it just becomes a class of good place. Um, and yeah, you know. um, I'm, I'm willing to go either way because I hadn't heard the ghetto argument when it was being developed. I find it to be a very interesting one. And the other thing I wanna throw out there is that, right? There are, there are the three, there are three parts of the criteria. There's the fact that it's intentional, The fact that it's supposed to be a good place and the other thing embedded in the original word in the original text is that it's not supposed to exist that it should never be able to fully come into being in a fallen world that it's a no place it's ooh not you the
1: it's the shangri-la idea of utopia you know the the lost city that People stumble across, and it's a throwback to a bygone era. And then somebody goes, well, Why can't we just build that again? You know, let's go. That's the other part, too, right? All the utopias we've looked at are future based. We're going to go over there and build a thing that currently doesn't exist rather than I am searching for a currently existing utopia that was lost and now I found it, but it was there the whole time.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I am going to do a Zapatista epilogue next week because um, I, uh, uh, that's something I think we'll totally return to when we, we think about Chiapas and the Yucatan today.
1: Yeah, I, w- I was glad you, you talked about it as much as you did, uh, what, three, four weeks ago. Um, that, that, and the th- and, you know, then we can get right down the rabbit hole of um, make America great again. And we're going back to the 1950s, non-existent ideal state.
0: Well, and that's why that's why I'm out, waiting to bust out my Cleon Skousen next week, because uh, right, you read the sanest thing Cleon Skousen had ever written. You did not read the first two thousand years, which is oh. the real trip uh, of his books, because. You know, Skousen is, you know, Skousen has like, he's got the imagination of Stalin when it comes to imagining how other people could live. Yet he has the political strategic imagination of a visionary, I guess also like Stalin. Anyway, um, and the fact that all of his work is represented with Stalinist realist art, I suppose I'm just catching up to my own argument. But um, what happens uh, when, Adam and Eve arrived from the planet Kolob um, in 4,000 BC, Skousen tells you the very first thing Adam does is construct a pipe organ. Um, And that uh, the pipe organ is exactly the same as the pipe organ Brigham Young constructed in um, the uh, tabernacle in uh, 1855 through 70. And uh, Skousen's like, yep, that's, that's what he did. He built this pipe or organ, this for its dimensions. These are the keys on it, let's go. And that happens in 4,000 BC. So in Skousen's story, all the tech is mostly the same. So it's, um, anyway, it's a, wild, it's a wild ride. But what I, I'm mentioning that to emphasize the degree to which there is a sincerity to the Mormon idea of restoration, of return to the past. Uh, that return to the past is embedded in the ideology from the beginning, even while Joseph Smith is trying to figure out which past they're returning to. Um, but the return to the past is already present by the time they get to Kirtland, Ohio, that, um, that they are restoring an original lost state. Um, and it makes the utopia, compared to other utopias of the time, a conservative one. And
1: we also need to add in uh, to the, uh, utopia discussion, uh, the modern, um, white people habit of going camping. (laughs) That that is a return. We love camping. Utopian state of sleeping on grass in in the great outdoors. Everybody talks about it. Like it's this throwback to a bygone, wonderful get in touch with nature, bullshit argument. And, um, I think anybody who, who loves camping can go on and on and on about what a utopian state of
0: campground is. Well, it was a uh, great
2: part of the rite of passage of being a Mormon teenager. All the summers spent outdoors getting fed up by mosquitoes <laughs> and leeches.
0: Well, the funny thing is, though, we've got to remember that camping is invented at the same time as Mormonism by the seekers and again, in the green politics course, which has a fair amount of adjacent material to this one, um, I wanna suggest that no campsite, no campground is ever a utopia because the purpose of the encounter with the wilderness is to produce a personal theophany, not a shared um, community. And that even if there's a concurrent theophany The point is that people are communing with the larger thing. It's much more consistent with seekerism, where the ideal, or Quakerism, or the Dukkabors, where the ideal ultimately exists inside the heart. And that we've traveled together to this location so that we can have this series of individual theophanies, not unlike a pilgrimage, right? When the pilgrims get to the end, they don't all have the same encounter with the saints. The pilgrims travel together, but then they have a set of individual encounters with the saint. And uh, in terms of like the kind of pop psych theology that Muir and Emerson and Thoreau developed for the dawn of camping, um, they're very much tapping into, it's not the community you create at the end. You use the community to get to the end to have the individual experiences. That's
1: the awesome
0: me. Theophany is where um, a person has a protracted vision um, that's um where some aspect of God and the cosmos is unfolded to them in a way that is intimate and life-changing. Um, it's not like an apocalypse where you're taken up above the world and you look down at the structure of space-time and god explains it to you um an apocalypse is an alienating experience of attaining higher wisdom whereas a theophany although they both involve an encounter with god usually um the theophany is a is a sense of intimacy and closeness and connection to things that are bigger than you
2: it's like a Joseph God Smith had a Theophany in the woods Behind his house Not camping but
0: <laughs> you That's where it. he's
2: Yeah that's where he saw God Was in the
1: woods Yeah Can we call it Theophany a, a God epiphany
0: <laughs> A God what
1: A God epiphany
0: Oh yeah uh, No absolutely not It's not a realization. It's an encounter. It's more intimate. It's more direct. Um, It's uh, an example of um, a theophany that I taught in the green politics course was the creation of the singing forest in the West Kootenays gladys mcintyre goes out to the forest and the trees begin singing to her and they uh, and she feels a union with the trees and they offer her this testimony about how she has been chosen to save them uh that's um so a theophany unlike an apocalypse or an epiphany it really pulls you in it pulls you into god it pulls you into some kind of job